Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read from Luke chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you? who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant? Because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look, there, or look, here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man, They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, 
where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Our chapter today has the same context as we open as chapters 15 and 16. Jesus still having that conversation with the Pharisees and the lawyers, with the disciples, everyone that was gathered together. And he, as he did with the last part, he directed it at the disciples, so he does also with this one, directed right to the disciples. And these first words are important words to talk about as a family. Temptations to sin are sure to come but woe to the one through whom they come. And for a family conversation here, if your children are older, ask them what what temptations they struggle with. What temptations do they find difficult to resist? And be willing to share your own with them as well. We live in America. We live in a land of independence. We live in a land where privacy is of the utmost importance. Those Independence and privacy aren't really Christian values. Christianity values family, brotherhood, interdependence, accountability, bearing one another's burdens. I cannot bear the burdens of my family if I don't know their burdens, right? I cannot help them. So if you can share your temptations with one another, not as in tempting each other, but actually honestly communicating to one another what you struggle with. You can pray for one another. You can work together to find ways to strengthen your resolve against such temptations. How can I encourage you today in the Lord? Maybe if it's a specific temptation that you know of a way that you can actually help defend. Uh, You know, if... If the temptation is stealing, maybe we don't leave our money sitting out on the table, right? Um, Just do a better job at at keeping things out of sight so that that temptation's not there. Those are just examples. There are lots of them. If your children are small, they might have trouble with answering a question like that. So maybe instead, review the Ten Commandments and talk about some things like, what is it? Honoring your father and your mother. Do you find it hard to listen to mom and dad sometimes? Those are the kinds of ways that you could rephrase something like that and interact with just even a little kiddo, two, three, four years old, uh, with a similar conversation, helping to see what they struggle with so that you then know as a parent how to help them in that struggle, in that fight how to pray for them, how to read together how, from God's word, what, what things to point them to. So we all face temptations. That's the point here. Temptations are sure to come. You will face a temptation every day, every moment of every day, perhaps. Uh, temptations are everywhere. However, woe to the one through whom they come. This, I don't know that we need to read that as a, a thing against the devil. I suppose you could. Um, I think this is better to read it as though this is God warning us. This is Jesus warning us not to be the source of temptation to others. So, for example, one of the things that Christians are talking about more and more of late is the idea of persecution. The Bible actually promises the Christian will be persecuted. It promises the world will hate us. However, we don't seek persecution. 
I don't go out of my way to find someone to hate me because their hating me is a sin. And if they were to kill me because of my faith, that's a sin. And I am not to seek to cause my neighbor to sin. I am to preach the gospel and to share the good news. And if they persecute me, then that's on them. But woe to me if I'm intentionally trying to cause that, right? I hope that makes sense as an example of this. Don't cause little ones, (laughs) I'm inserting that from the next verse, but to sin. Don't, don't bring temptation before them. Better than to cause someone else to sin is to have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea, in which case you drown and die. This is the millstone. Like I recall the scene, for example, from I think it's Pirates of the Caribbean where they're having a sword fight uh, in a little barn area and there's a donkey that's walking around this giant turning stone. Um, you might remember a scene like that. It's in other movies too. That's what we're talking about. They had two types of millstones. They had a little one, almost like mortar and pestle, uh, as you would grind something up in a bowl. But they also had the giant one that was used for for mass amounts of farming. And that's the picture here. Imagine a rock that is as big as you are tied to your neck, and it's thrown into the sea with you. There's nothing you can do. It would be better to be killed like that, just done. The suffering of drowning is fairly quick than to cause one of these kids to sin. Because if you do, what's the punishment? The Lord judges those who sin. The Lord judges those who cause others to sin. There's danger to that for your salvation. So we are to repent as well. Um, For we have done this, right? We have tempted others to sin, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. So repent of those things. But what is he talking about with one of these little ones? Did he grab a child? There are instances where he does that, like he'll pick up a child and he'll put him on his lap or he'll put him right there in the midst of the disciples to teach something. This is not mentioned here. Instead, we might be able to simply take this as a reference to the disciples themselves. One of these little ones, one of these little faith ones, these ones whose faith is not yet strong. So then he warned them, I mean, it's a warning across the board. Pay attention to yourselves. Be on guard against doing such things. And then, a bit of a shift, if your brother sins, rebuke him. So don't don't just say his sin is okay. Call him out on it. That's brotherly living, brotherly love. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is key, and this is hard, right? That's a question for your children. Is it hard to forgive when someone hurts you? Then talk about what forgiveness is. What is forgiveness? What does it mean to forgive? And the picture I've been working with in my own mind lately is that of the soldier who has a, a sword in his right hand and is wearing a shield or a buckler on his left, and he's been hit, right? He's been harmed by another. The, the picture of this is that he does not take his sword and swing back and get his revenge. Forgiveness is laying down the sword so he's not going to fight back. I'm not going to harm you back. I'm giving up my right of revenge. The world would think you have a right to revenge. Scripture doesn't talk that way. Revengeance belongs to the Lord. But it's also more than that. 
Forgiveness is taking that shield and laying it down as well. It is saying, I'm not going to hold this sin against you. I'm not going to let it impact our relationship as we move forward. I mean, consider the example Jesus just used. If your brother sins against you seven times in the day and repents seven times, forgive him. How many of us in our sinful nature, right, or even in the ways that the world would talk in, how many of us, if our brother had done it three times in one day, that would be enough already? We want nothing to do with you anymore. Just get away. I'm done. Four times? Five times? How many of you could stomach someone sinning against you the same way six times in one day? Seven? I mean, this is the point. In order for them to have done it against you that many times, you have to have actually forgiven them. You have to have put your guard down, not up. Because if your guard is up, you have put a wall there and they can't do that thing again, right? If they've insulted you one way or another, maybe you've just walked away. If they've actually harmed you, physically harmed you, all you have to do is walk away and then nothing, right? So you can't forgive them seven times in a day. They can't harm you seven times in a day. Do you see the picture of forgiveness here? It's not, it's not easy. Not at all. We are called to meekness. And this then brings us to the apostles' response. They simply respond, increase our faith. Uh, they perhaps recognize that they are the child of verse 2. Uh, that they need a stronger faith. Maybe they recognize that they struggle to forgive, like Jesus just told them to do in verses 3 and 4. Maybe they know that, like we do, they struggle to rebuke, right? In our culture today, you can't tell somebody they did something wrong. You can't say that they sinned. You'll get hated for that. So maybe they struggle with that too. Increase our faith. The Lord's response to them, though, makes me wonder if it's not something else. And let's see that play out as we look at the next few verses. So, first, he says, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted, planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So even a small bit of faith, just a small faith would be able to do this, be able to command a tree, and the tree would have to listen. The question here is why? And you can ask your children that, like, why would you pray for the mulberry tree to move? And if you're just praying for the mulberry tree to move because it would be cool, or it would be something you could brag about, or it would be, you know, something that proves how good your faith is, that mulberry tree is not going to budge. This is James chapter 4, verse 3. It's a text that I've shared with you before in the podcast not long ago. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And that's a helpful text when we think about these verses that deal with, with faith and prayer. If we want that mulberry tree to move, it, it has a purpose. Jesus curses a fig tree and it dies because the fig tree wasn't producing fruit and he uses it to teach his disciples. So if we had a reason for the mulberry tree to move, maybe it would. Similar to Jesus talking about the mountains. You know, we don't have to move a mountain today. We can just go over it. We can get in a plane and fly over the mountain. There aren't people on the other side of the mountain range that need to hear the gospel. Well, I mean, they are, but they've had the opportunity already. If you're going there, you can still get there. It's not like they're, they've never heard it. And the mountain is somehow in the way. Hope that helps. 
All right, um, I've spent a lot of time on the opening here. So why this? notice the words don't stop. Jesus flows right into this unworthy servants section as it's subtitled in the ESV, and it seems like an odd text. It seems pretty out of place, but it does have a purpose. So who of you would say to your servant, you know, come and eat at the table? He'd have him clean up first, and he'd have him feed you first, and then he would get to eat. He's your servant. That's what he does. And when he's done with it, you don't thank him. It's just the command, right? He's done what he was given to do. There's no need to thank someone who's doing their job in that regard. And this is what Jesus then says of the disciples. When you're done, this is all you say. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Consider it this way. In a good family conversation, what has God done for you? Right? Good conversation point, good starter he created you. He daily provides for you all that you need. He gave you his own son, Jesus Christ, to forgive you of all your sins. I mean, what more could you want from him, right? Um, we can't come to the gate of paradise someday when, you know, it's the judgment and say, Lord, look at me, look at all the stuff that I've done. You should be grateful for me and for all my work. And I hope that that kind of a phrasing might make it connect better to verse 5 for you. Why is this text here? While the disciples, the apostles here, wanting an increased faith, they want those positions of power. They want those positions of authority. They want what essentially the Pharisees have now, that position of leadership over others. And Jesus is warning them here to not seek after power, to remember their place, to be humble, for they are, they are slaves. We are slaves. We are slaves of Christ. We are slaves of the gospel. We are, we are here not to be served, but to serve, just as Jesus did, right? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, the next section. Verses 11 through 19 is the Thanksgiving Day text. I mean, this is the gospel reading every year on Thanksgiving Day, if your church does one of those services. He's passing from Galilee down to Samaria. So Galilee's north by the Sea of Galilee. Samaria is the former capital of Israel. And so it's a city there in the north, well, north of Jerusalem, kind of a region at this point. It's where the Samaritans are from, Samaria, Samaritan. He goes into a village, there's 10 lepers there. They stand at a distance as the law of God required in the book of Leviticus. And they lift up their voice and they ask Jesus to have mercy on them. Right? Like, what can he do? What do they expect? Jesus responds to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. This is not okay. By Old Testament standards, this is just not how you do things. If you want to learn more about the, the laws of leprosy and clean and unclean with leprosy, go to Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. 13 will tell you about the disease and what makes you unclean. 14 tells you about the process of becoming clean again. Which, I mean, when you're unclean, you have to live outside the camp. You have to cover your mouth when somebody's nearby and yell, unclean, unclean. And you don't get to come back. You don't get to enter camp again. You don't get to be with the community again until your leprosy is gone. At that point, you go and show yourself to the priest. There's an offering on the first day. There's another offering on the eighth day. The priest has to, to examine you and declare that you are indeed clean, right? Uh, that's the process here. And so Jesus, 
shortcuts all of it. And he even tells them, right, they're, they're lepers. They are in the, they're outside the camp. They're lepers. They see him. They're calling out for his help. So they're still sick. And Jesus just simply tells them, go. He skips the step. They're supposed to be well before they go. But he says, go and tell, show yourself to the priest. And they go. There's faith there, right? There's trust there that they're going, that they're doing this. And then one of them, when he sees that he's healed, goes back to Jesus. He praises God. He falls on his face. He worships God. He gives thanks to Jesus. He goes to his priest. Right? Jesus said, go, show your priest. As they were going, they're healed. And this man sees it. He notices it. And he treats Jesus as his priest instead of whoever the priest was in the village or in that community. He's a Samaritan. Enemies of the Jews. The Jewish people hate the Samaritans. The Samaritans hate the Jewish people. And Jesus points this out. We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The other nine returned to their lives. Right? They missed their home. They missed their family. They missed their work. They missed the community. They missed all of that. The comfort of their own, well, I don't know how comfortable their beds were, but you get the picture, right? They didn't go to Jesus. They didn't come to Jesus first. They went back to their lives. This connects pretty well to the chapter 16, verse 13, where Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. They despise the other. They have nothing to do with Jesus. All right, then we get the conversation about the coming of the kingdom. We have to cover this one pretty quickly here. The Pharisees wanted to know when the kingdom would come. And Jesus' response is, you're not going to see it come. It's not going to be like an army marching into town because it's already here. Right? The kingdom of God is in the midst of you because the kingdom of God is Jesus. Then he speaks to the disciples, telling them that the days are coming when they'll want to see the days of Jesus like the days right now of Jesus where he's there with them, beside them, teaching them, but they won't see it because he's ascended. We live in these days. How would you like to see Jesus? How would you like to talk to Jesus? How would you like to have Jesus teach us, right, about the good news directly? We desire those days, but we don't see them. And there will be people who say, look here, look there, claiming that they have seen Jesus, that they've seen the Christ, and we're not to follow those. When Jesus comes back, it will be like lightning. It will be instantaneous. His return will light up the sky. He'll be here, and we'll all know it. No one misses it when lightning flashes up the sky. He makes a couple of comparisons. So first he must suffer. He has to suffer before he can come back. And he did that, so he's suffered on the cross for us. Now, we see in verse 26, he compares us to Noah. In verse 28, he compares it to Lot. So you've got Noah and the ark. They were all just living normal lives. There was a warning. They didn't listen to it. They're living their normal lives, and then the flood comes, and they're all wiped out. There's no second chance. You get Sodom and Gomorrah. They're just living their normal lives, right? They're doing normal stuff, sinful as it may be, as it was with Noah too. And they're just doing it, and then all of a sudden, fire and brimstone fall. There is no second chance. So will it be when Christ returns. There's, you've already been warned. That's the point Jesus has made in this whole last few chapters. You've been warned. The warning is there. The Son of Man will come back. 
you won't know when he's coming. He's going to come back. And when he does, it's, it's done. There's no second chance at that point. When he returns, he's here and your fate is sealed. If you don't trust in him, you are destroyed. All right, then we get this picture of, well, not returning to your stuff. Remember Lot's wife. She looked back. She longed for what she had. Um, if you do that, you'll perish too. You'll perish with the stuff that's destroyed. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and that's your eternal life is lost with the earthly one if you don't give up these things. Whoever is willing to lose his life will keep it. Verse 34 causes some conflict here. Those who believe in a rapture, that all the Christians will be whisked away from the earth and everybody else will be left for a season of tribulation, um, they point to these sorts of verses that Jesus mentions. But it's actually not clear if you want to be the ones taken or the ones left in this text. Because the rapture assumes you want to be the ones taken. But look at the stories that Jesus just used, Noah and Lot. Who's still on the earth when those judgments are done? Noah and Lot. They're the ones left. The ones who didn't believe in God were destroyed. They're taken away from this life. So uh, it doesn't matter, ultimately, which direction we go with 34 and 35. You want to be the one who is taken to be with Jesus or left to be with Jesus, however you want to phrase that. You want to be the one that's with Jesus, not the one that's without him. Then verse 37, just like the Pharisees asked when the kingdom of God is, so the disciples here are kind of asking where the kingdom of God is. And Jesus answers almost snarky, like, isn't it obvious? Where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. So you know that, right? You see roadkill and the birds flock to that. Maybe the point that Jesus is making as he speaks and says that to his disciples is that you will simply know when the time comes, when, when Christ comes back, just like the vultures are drawn to the roadkill, uh, the, to the corpse, so you will be drawn to Christ. And it'll just be easy. You won't have to ask the question. Don't worry about it. It'll be okay. Let us praise the Lord incarnate, Christ who suffered in our place. Jesus died.